Welcome everyone here this morning. Uh, enjoyed that wonderful little thunderstorm we had this morning. Boy, the weatherman really missed it because I didn't hear him say yesterday at all anything about rain today. That this goes to show you that God can do what He wants to do when He wants to do it. So we can predict and think and wish, but uh, it's all in control by God. Hope the church don't turn over today. This side's pretty heavy. This side's kind of light. I don't know what it is about the this side, but it seems like that's where everybody wants to gather. But uh, anyway, you're in here, and we're happy you're here. Welcome any visitors we have. Uh, my name is Steve Burleson. I'm the worship leader. I'm by no means the pastor. Uh, once you hear him preach, you understand that that's why I'm not the pastor. <laughs> but we have a few announcements. Uh, we're going to run through them here pretty quick. Uh, the Rising, which is a young growth group thing that the pastor and Others are leading up, so uh, it'll meet today at 5 at the Fellowship Hall. The growth groups will meet at 6.30 at the Parsonage on Thursday. And it's got a note here, come if you haven't come at all, please come. And I know they're going through the book of John, which is a good book in the Bible. So uh, we're studying it also in our Sunday school class, so it's a a very good thing to uh, study. Any other announcements? I know we got Monday, Thursday coming up, week after next, correct? Yes. We got a time for that? Seven o'clock. Women's group is not tomorrow, it's next week, next Monday. Women's Fellowship. Women's Fellowship, yeah, uh, at the Fellowship Hall. If you uh, have never attended, please come again. You don't have to be a member to come hang out with us and have a little bit with us. Orders or small dinner and have a And we also have our capital fund today. Uh, during our start of our service here, we'll take up offering in our little church. That is basically a separate fund from a regular offering. We do not pass the offering plate. Uh, the plate is back in the narthex. You drop your money in there, and Pat will pick it up and be sure it gets accounted for and uh, accredited to the right person. This is a separate fund that we use to uh, maintain the church grounds and the building and whatever we see fit. I'm going to start today by reading from Psalm 14. Uh, subtitle of mine in my Bible is, The Fool Says There Is No God. The fool says it in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from the heaven on the children of man to see if they are who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. And there is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge of all evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? They are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteousness. You would shame the plans of the Lord. But the Lord is his refugee. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his fortunes to his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. 
The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains true. Let's stand and sing our first song, hymn 256, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. Church, what do we believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only God, our Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified. 
seated. At this time, we'll have our children's stories. Well, good morning, guys. It's good to see all these kids here this morning. All right. So this morning, question for you. Have you ever done something that you didn't understand why you did it? Have you ever said something mean to a friend or brother or a sister, but you didn't mean to say it? And after you said it, did you feel confused about why you said it? Yeah. Well, if you have, you're not the only one that's ever done that. All of us grown-ups have done that, too. Even the Apostle Paul did that. And you know what Paul realized? When he did things he knew were wrong, or he did something without thinking about it, he realized that it wasn't him who did it, but it was the sin inside of him. And every time he wanted to do what was right, his sin would keep him from doing right, and he'd do wrong instead. Now, that's a hard battle to fight, and it's a hard truth to realize. Maybe you've realized this, and you've already felt that. But if not, you probably will at some point. What do you think we should do to win happens? Pray. Yeah, pray is a good thing. Who do you think can help us to do what's right? God. Jesus. Jesus died to free us from the sin within our hearts. And then he gives us his spirit to help us to do what's right. Alright, let's bow our heads and say a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you give us your grace and help us to show the love of Jesus to everyone we come in contact with. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, got some treats for you. Anybody wants to go to the nursery, Miss Burr is going to take care of it. girls and a boy. You're going to have your hands full. <laughs> if you need help, just yell. <laughs> We're going to do our capital fund now, as I, as I was speaking of, and I'm going to read one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His majesty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with a trumpet sound. Praise Him with a lute and harp. Praise Him with trampoline and dance. 
Praise Him with strings and pipes. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Here in the reading of God's Word. Let's stand and sing our next hymn. It's one everybody should know by heart. You shouldn't even really need a book. The Old Rugged Cross. Sing it loud. Sing it like you mean it.
you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans. If you do not have one with you this morning, there should be a blue one on the end of your pew. Feel free to grab that one, or maybe a, a phone or a device you have with you that has the Bible app. Whichever it is, grab it and turn with me to Romans chapter 7. If you're visiting with us this morning, let me uh, take a moment here to welcome you. Uh, it is good to have you here with us. I'm uh, glad that you are here. We have been working our way as a church through this, this book of Romans since July. And we are almost, but not quite, halfway through, uh, which I think is a pretty good pace considering others uh, like Martin Lloyd-Jones took over 16 years to get through this book and still didn't finish. So I think we're, we're on a good pace. I, don't, I think we should beat Lloyd-Jones' uh, record, I, I'm hoping. Uh, but this morning we are looking at Romans chapter 7. We've been in chapter 7 for the last three weeks now, and, and this morning we will be finishing this chapter. And so I will be reading to you verses 13 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. This is what Paul writes. Did that which is good, then, bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And so I find it to be a law. That when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. Father, we, we are thankful for all things, all that you've given us. We look outside and are reminded of your provision in the rain. How you care for even just tiny, insignificant blades of grass that are here today and are burned by the sun tomorrow. And if you provide your grace, and your rain, and your care for something as insignificant as grass, then surely you would care for us as well. And so God, as we come to your word this morning, we come seeking help. We come seeking the help and the guidance of your Spirit that inspired these words. Spirit, move among your people and open our eyes that we may see and behold wondrous things out of your word this morning. 
be glorified in the preaching, in the receiving, in the believing of your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. What is often said that this particular passage in Romans that I just read for you is the most well-known and at the same time the most controversial passage in the entire book of Romans. The focus of this controversy revolves really around the identity of the person that Paul is referring to. You may have noticed as I read to you, as you read along with me, this use of the first person where Paul says, I and me and my. He's speaking from a first person perspective. But there is debate on who this I and me that Paul uses is referring to. And really there's two sides to this coin as there are to most. The first side is that I is understood that Paul is speaking about himself before he became a Christian. Someone who, who, who attempts to obey the law of God in their own strength and in their own power to secure their salvation through their own obedience. And so you can read this passage and you can see the frustration that results from a person who tries to do good, who tries to do what God wants them to, but ultimately finds sin ruling over them making them unable to do what they want to do. The other side of the coin is that this I refers to Paul after he becomes a Christian. And so the struggle that we see in these, in these verses is not a non-believer trying to do what is right, but a believer trying to do what is right. And surely we can relate to this, and we can, we can see that a, a believer who sees the goodness of God's law, who delights in his word, and yet frequently fails. And falls into sin. And so in this passage, as we read it, it describes our existence, our daily existence as believers. We want to do good, yet the sin that dwells within us overwhelms these spiritual desires, and we fail. You see, regardless of how you read this passage, the passage ends the same way. If you read it from the perspective of this I being a non-believer, then the passage ends in verse 25 with the non-believer crying out, Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And if you read it through the perspective of a believer's daily struggle with sin, dwelling within them, fighting against it, wanting to do what is right, but unable to do it, again, the passage ends, Who will save me from this body of death? Wretched man that I am. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, one of the, the joys, one of the joys that I find every week as I preach God's word to you, as I study and prepare during the week and, and look forward to Sunday mornings with you, is getting to come to a passage like this. A passage that is rich, that is profound, that is deep, that is a beautiful pointer to our Savior. If I can compare it, it is, it is something similar to what I imagine a, a deep sea scuba, scuba diver does. As he puts on his scuba gear and he leaves the boat and he leaves the captain and those that are in the boat and he puts on his gear and he dives into the deep waters. And he spends a considerable amount of time there and he eventually makes his way back up to the boat holding a, a priceless gem that he has found from the treasure at the bottom of the ocean. And so he comes up and he brings it back up to the boat. And that is really what I want to do this morning. This week I have 
dove down into deep waters of Romans 7 and there have found a priceless gem. A gem beyond value and beyond measure. And it is that gem that I want to lay before you this morning. But with that comes an invitation. Because this gem is not the only one down there to be found. And so I hold this out to you and and present this treasure to you with also the invitation that you have your own scuba gear and you can go down and find more treasure for yourself deep into the waters of God's Word. So with that said, let let me begin here by trying to clarify and Clarify what this passage is about. I, I want to I spend some time on the two sides of this coin, of this controversy, of really whether this passage speaks to the unregenerate or the regenerate. And then at the end, I want to, to show you what I believe to be the solution to this controversy in our understanding. So I, I want to I handle this passage carefully. I, I don't want to skip over it and say, well, some people believe this, but we should believe this. I, I want to present both sides here. Because in reality, and you'll see this for yourself, in reality, both arguments hold up. They both have merits. They both have have good things. They both have strengths and weaknesses. And in fact, well-known pastors and theologians have fallen on both sides of this debate. Whether Paul is speaking about the unregenerate, a non-Christian, someone who is without spiritual life, or the regenerate, the Christian. Someone whom the Spirit has come and, and regenerated their lives and given them breath and being again. So I, I honestly don't know that there's a right or a wrong way to look at this. I think this passage can provide great comfort to all people in all walks of spiritual life. So I, I want to begin with these two sides, and we'll start with side one, the unregenerate. The unregenerate. This interpretation holds that the eye language that Paul uses, as I've said already, it refers to someone who is not yet a believer in Christ. And so if it is Paul speaking in the first person here, we would understand it to be Paul speaking from a perspective before his Damascus Road experience, before he met the resurrected Jesus, before he became a Christian. And you read through this passage and a few phrases stand out to support this view. You can look at at verse 14, for example. Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. This is prisoner language. This is someone who is bound to and mastered by sin. Or you can look at verse 18, where he says, Nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. And then again in verse 23, he talks about this war raging within him. And, And that this war is one... Not by Christ and not by the Spirit, but that this war is won by sin. He says there, he says that waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So when you take these phrases together and you see them, then it begins to become clear, at least to some, that Paul cannot be speaking of a Christian. Because as Christians, we are not slaves to sin. We are not prisoners. We are not bound to sin. We are not defeated in this. And that's the language of these verses. That this is a language of defeat. A language of slavery. A language of bondage. And if you've been with us over the last several months, we've, we've seen in Romans 5 and 6 how Paul has already described the Christian as not being these things anymore. 
says you are dead to sin. You are not a slave to sin any longer, but you are a slave to righteousness. So if we unpack this view a little bit more, we we begin to see a, a little bit of the beauty that this passage speaks to those still seeking salvation through the law. And here's, here's where I, I want to lay out this view to you, more practical, more applicable to us. That it's not just an argument or a view that to be handled at a distance, but if this is the way that we interpret the scripture, then this is how this scripture should speak to us. Because you see, I, I believe that many within our churches, there are many within our churches who fall under this unregenerate category. And you got, who may not even be aware of it. And I'm not foolish or or naive enough to think that even for a second that we do not have those people here among us this morning. So I lay this out to you for you to consider whether this speaks to you. And in order for us to do that, to, to, to accomplish this, I need you for just a brief moment this morning to be honest with yourself. To take a good, long hard look into the spiritual mirror that we have in God's word and to determine whether or not this is you. Because Paul's description of this person in Romans 7 is profound and it is convicting. See, here's a man who is familiar with scripture, as many of us are. Here's someone who knows what God's word says and what it requires of him, as many of us are. And not only does he know it, not only does he know what God's word says, he wants and desires to do what is written here, as many of us do. He understands the law of God and he knows that it tells him how he should live. And and deep down he wants to do what is right. But there's a problem. His desire to do what is right is not matched by an ability to do what is right. He says that in verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, then I agree with the law that it is good. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying the fact that he hates his sin and he hates his wrong actions proves to his own mind that the law is good. But the issue is that knowing what is right does not lead to doing what is right. So because of this, he hates what he does. And yet at the same time, he can't stop doing it. It's like an addict who knows that his addiction is killing him. And he even hates the fact that he's addicted to it at all. He wants to change deeply and truly. He desires change and freedom from his addiction. And yet at every turn, he finds himself drowning deeper into it. Because he just can't say no. And he hates it. But then this man that Paul describes comes to a revelation about himself. If I want to do what's right, but I can't, then there must be something inside of me that is pushing against this desire to do what is right. There must be something else at work within me that's keeping me from doing what I want to do. And he says it in verse 17. So it is no longer I who do it sin that dwells within me. I have the desire to do what is right, 
but not the ability to carry it out. And this indwelling sin within him continues to lead him down a road where he doesn't want to be. And yet at the same time, he can only continue walking down it. Because sin is his master. Sin is not a force that exists outside of himself, controlling him like a puppet. But it is a master within. A master that dominates his thoughts and his words and his actions. Because it dominates and rules over his heart. And in verse 21, he realizes a principle. Paul calls it a law, but to avoid confusion, he's not talking about God's law in verse 21 but a general principle that is at work in his life. Every time I want to do good, every time the desire to obey God's law comes about, every time I try really, really hard, evil is right there. And there's this battle that takes place over my soul, and sin wins every No matter how hard he tries, no matter how much he wants to do what is right, he can't. Because he is in a losing battle with sin, because sin is his master. He has tried everything he can think of to obey the law of God, but he sees his own inability and he is left hopeless. Leading him to cry out, wretched man that I am. Because this is what he is, a divided, wretched man. So now, church, I, I come back to you. I ask, is this a picture of you? Have you found yourself staring into the law of God with a desire to do what is right, a desire to obey, a desire to, to please your Heavenly Father, and yet every time you stand up, every time you try, you find you just You've tried everything, but nothing works. And so tomorrow you'll try again, and that will fail. And then the next day you'll try again, and that will fail. And the next day you'll try again, and that will fail. And so day after day after day passes, and this burden just weighs heavier and heavier on you. See, here's where the, that honest look at yourself matters so much this morning. Because are you trying to save yourself through your own obedience? Are you trying to earn your place before God by doing everything you can to make Him happy? And you see, that doesn't sound like a bad thing, does it? It sounds like a good thing to try and work and to try and live in a way that makes God happy. And yet, it's a losing, hopeless battle. That will leave you defeated by sin. And if that's you this morning, then let me just let me just speak directly to you for just a moment. Stop trying. Stop trying to live in obedience to God's word on your own because you will never do it, ever. We live in a society where, it's, where, where we continue to teach each other and teach even our kids that anything you set your mind to, you can do. Let me tell you very clearly, as loudly and as, as slowly as I can, you can't do this. It's impossible. Your sin will win every time. 
because it is your master and you will lose. So stop. Your solution to salvation, your solution to ease the burden that weighs upon you is not in your own obedience, but it's in the obedience of another. That someone else has obeyed the law of God where you could not. And then he gives you his obedience as if you did it. That's exactly what Paul gives us, a solution at the end of 24 and 25. If you are feeling this burden, then here's what you do. You cry these verses out. Wretched man that I am, wretched woman that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Let me tell you the good news, church. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He is who saves you from this body of death. And from all the burden of trying and failing over and over and over again. Because as you cry out these words, you will turn to the Christ who obeyed for you. Who died to set you free from this unending battle of works. Realize this morning, maybe for the very first time. That you can never free yourself. And then turn to Christ and be free. Not because of your works, but because of His. I believe this message speaks profoundly to the unregenerate. And I I also believe that there may be unregenerate people here this morning. So what I mean when I say unregenerate is is those that are spiritually dead. And you may have grown up in this in this church in this building. There may not have you, you may have may be able to count the Sundays that you've missed over the last ten years because they're so few in number. But you can still be unregenerate. You can still be without spiritual life. Your life can be marked by a desire to do what is God what, what God requires. It can be marked by a desire to do what is right. And yet completely be spiritually dead and lifeless. If that's you, there is salvation in the words that Paul writes here. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He and He alone will save you from this. Turn to Him. But that is only one side of the coin. The second side is that this passage does not speak to the unregenerate, but speaks to the Christian, to a regenerate believer. And then this picture is of the daily battle that we have with our own sin that still dwells within us. So let me give you the evidence and support of this interpretation. Paul says in verse says that this person in verse 22 is one who delights in the law of God and his inner being. That's a word that that inner being, that's a a phrase that Paul uses throughout his letters in the New Testament to refer to the inward part of a believer, the the place where the Spirit resides and gives life. And I mean, simply put, sinners, non-believers, do not delight in God's Word. Sinners do not delight in the law of God. In our flesh, we hate God's law. We rebel against it. We fight against it. We deny its authority over us. We disobey so, according to this, this view and in this light, Paul cannot be describing a non-Christian. It must be a believer. 
Because here's someone who delights, who desires to do what is right. Added to that is Paul's depiction of the unregenerate that he's already given in chapter 1. You may remember that he does not list among the, those that long list of sins. There's no hint or sign at all that the unregenerate desire what is right. In fact, he goes so far to call them in chapter 1 that they are not only evildoers, but they are inventors of evil. They run out of ways of doing evil, so they come up with new ways. What Paul describes here in Romans 7 is not a battle for salvation. It's not a battle for justification like it was for the unregenerate. Here, it is a battle for sanctification. And so the description becomes this. And again, I ask you, the same as I did before with the unregenerate, I ask you, consider yourself for a moment. Is this you? Because Paul describes a man who As I said, delights in God's law. He desires to do what God commands, but frequently and often finds himself in his own life and he fails. He falls into the trap of sin over and over and over again. I can can speak to you personally from this passage. This is a passage that I have come back to in my own spiritual life, in my own walk with Christ. This passage has provided comfort and security and hope when I have felt none of it. I have been racked with guilt over my failures. When I have fallen time and time again into sin, Paul's words here help. Because you see, I, I believe in Jesus and I trust Jesus for salvation. But at the same time, every day the sin that dwells within me rears its ugly head and I hate it. It makes me sick to my stomach. Do not do what I want, but I do the very sin that I hate. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. And every time I desire to do what God calls me to do as His child, as His disciple, as His follower, evil is always right there, close at hand. And in my soul, there is this daily battle between my indwelling sin and this Holy Spirit given desire to do what is right. But often, so, so often, sin wins. And I fail. As Christians, you will feel this too. If you have not already, let me assure you, you will feel this. That frustration of dealing with your sin, of longing to do what is right, longing to be set free from this body of sin and this body of death, longing to see Christ return, to make it all new again. Wretched people that we are indeed. Who will save us from this toil and strife and frustration? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christian, to the regenerate in the room, let me, let, me, let me say this. The struggle that you feel with sin, with the sin that dwells within you, is real. And you can handle it in a number of ways, but, but let me just give you two 
pieces of advice, two ways that I think I hope will encourage you through this struggle. First, don't resign yourself to sin. Keep fighting. It can seem that sin wins more days than it doesn't. Some days it seems to make more sense to bash your head through the mountainside than it does to keep fighting against sin. But you, Christian, are not defeated by sin. Not today, not tomorrow, not ever again. Sin is not your master. Do not for one second live as if it is. Christ has already defeated this for you, and you live today in victory over that sin. Will you fail? Yes. Daily. But don't you for one second stop fighting. It is what God told Cain so long ago. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is against you, but you, believer, must rule over it. Do not resign yourself to sin. Second piece of advice. Don't hide your struggle. Don't resign yourself to sin. Don't hide your struggle. There's not a brother or sister in this room that doesn't face the same struggles you do. Each and every one of us wage the exact same war against sin. This church is not a place for pasted on smiles and false facades of victory. It has been said somewhere, and I'll I'll say it again here, the church is not a museum for saints, but it is a hospital for sinners. And if you walk in those doors on Sunday after having a hard-fought week with sin, where you are hurting, where you are wounded, where the battle has defeated you day after day after day, do not feel that when you walk in those doors, you have to pretend like you've just had the most victorious battle in your life. Do not put on a smile and pretend like everything's fine when it clearly isn't. If you come in here carrying with you the wounds from your battles with sin from the previous week, this is not a place where you have to pretend that you're not hurting or pretend that you're not injured from that battle. Let your wounds show. And let the hurt be seen by others. Let the church tend to your injuries. So that when you walk back out those doors, you can go back and get back into the fight. I think we so often fall prey to the lie that we are on our own in this battle against sin. But you're not. You're not the only one fighting, and you're not fighting alone. If you are hurting from the fight this morning, then find a brother or sister. Ask for prayer. Ask for help. Ask for Ask for guidance. Ask for them to put band-aids on the wounds and to be encouraging to you, to pray for you, to fight for you. Don't hide your struggle because you're not alone in that fight. See, now that I've I've given you both sides of this controversy, I want to end this morning by sharing with you where, where I stand on it, my view on it. And this view is not one that I've come to on my own, but but it's a truth that Martin Lloyd-Jones discovered as he preached through this passage, and one that I, by reading and studying what he had found, I, I believe it to be accurate and powerful and deep. So what makes this debate so difficult is that 
both views have merit. And I could stand here and I could preach one sermon and, and focus solely on the unregenerate and say this passage is to the non-Christian and it would be a true and biblical interpretation of the text. Or I could stand on the other side and I could stand here and say this passage speaks solely to the regenerate, to the Christian. And again, it would be a true and biblical interpretation and proclamation of the text. Because I believe this passage speaks profoundly to the unregenerate. Paul displays this fruitless, hopeless struggle of non-Christians trying to save themselves by obeying the law of God. I also believe that this passage speaks, displays the, the real struggle of Christians who are fighting and waging war against indwelling sin. Both views are satisfactory and rightly understand the struggle that Paul displays here. But because both are true, the meaning of Romans 7 points to deeper life. See, Romans 7 really isn't only about the unregenerate or only about the regenerate. Romans 7 is about the hopelessness of someone, of anyone, who tries to live in obedience to God's law on their own. See, the unregenerate is someone who believes that they must save themselves. They work and they work and they work trying to make themselves righteous, but it just can't be done. And that frustration is real. This is an attempt to justify themselves before God through their obedience. And it is a hopeless road. This is the person who says, if I can just get this right, if I can just get my life back on track, then hopefully my successes will outshine my failures. I can get things turned around. You see, the problem isn't a failure versus a success battle. The problem is a dead versus a living battle. The unregenerate are not brought to life through the law. Only Christ does that. But the regenerate, likewise, is someone who has placed faith in Christ. They are justified by faith, but then they believe they are tempted to sanctify themselves through their obedience. This, too, is a hopeless road. This is one who says, I, I believe in Jesus. I trust Him for salvation. I believe I've got that, that heavenly ticket punched. But now, until then, I have to obey. Or else He might take back that ticket. Or else he, he might think that I am not worthy of His love if I don't obey. And so I've got to prove myself. I've got to, to show Him. I'll keep His law and that will be enough. I'll earn it. the regenerate are brought to life in Christ but then they attempt to keep on living through their own obedience but the law does not bring the unregenerate to life and the law does not sustain the regenerate in their life loved ones both of these roads they're so tempting and they're so prevalent in our churches and in our cultures and in our hearts both roads lead to the same wretched end. But the true road to hope and the true road to life and joy and peace is the same whether you are a believer or a non-believer. Whether you are unregenerate or regenerate, the road is the same. If you are seeking to justify yourself by your obedience, stop. Look to Jesus who justifies you by His death and resurrection. He obeyed because you could not. 
If you are seeking to sanctify yourself by your obedience, stop. Look to Jesus who sanctifies you and purifies you and makes you holy by His grace and through His Spirit. You will never make yourself holy, no matter how hard you try to obey God's law. He and He alone must do it. See, when we attempt to save ourselves by our obedience, and when we attempt to sanctify ourselves by our obedience, we are truly without hope. We are truly what Paul calls wretched men and women. Such an interesting word, isn't it? We don't really use that word, wretched, too much today, do we? But if you look it up, you find that a wretch is someone who is unhappy and despicable. Someone who is fighting a losing battle. Someone who is without joy, without hope, and without life. That's a wretch. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. He saves those who cannot save themselves. He sanctifies those who cannot sanctify themselves. You are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. You are sanctified by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. Anything else will leave you hopeless, wretched, and divided. And in Christ, and in Christ alone, you are saved, and you are sanctified. So I'll end this morning with the same invitation that I gave at the beginning. Here is the gem from the deep waters of Romans 7. That gem is Jesus. He is the treasure beyond value. He is the, 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 precious, the precious jewel at the bottom of these deep waters. Turn to Him and then put on the scuba gear and go find more of it. Go dive deep this week into Romans 7. Go dive deep and see for yourselves how truly invaluable He is for all that He has done, for all that He is doing, and for all that He will do. Pray with me. God, we thank you for this word. It is a challenge. It is a comfort. It is a... It is deep, deep waters. And yet, in these waters, we find you. God, help us. Help us to lay down our word lay down our efforts, to lay down our strivings, and to rest in the finished work of Christ. Because it is just that. It is finished. And God, as we rest in, in our Savior, as we rest in His finished work, would You sanctify us? Would Your Spirit move among us and teach us what your word teaches, what your word says, and enable us to obey. Not to earn our place, but because our place is already there. Save us and sanctify us, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Every week as we uh, respond to the preaching of God's word here at Mere Creek, we do it through taking communion together.
Uh, so if you need the elements, uh, Ron is at the back. If you want to raise your hand, he will bring it to you. And, and since we've had a lot of talk of, of unregenerate, regenerate, let me give some instruction here using these same terms. Uh, if you are here this morning and you fall into the category of unregenerate, then this table, this, these elements, are simply not for you. Because in reality, what we're doing as we take this table together, we are giving a picture to remind ourselves and to see ourselves of, of what Jesus has done for us. It is a, a photograph. And the photograph doesn't really mean much if you don't understand what the photograph points us to. So this morning, if you, are, if you belong to the unregenerate, then don't take the picture. Instead, take the real thing. Turn to Christ and be saved. And if that's you, I would love to have a conversation with you and talk more about Romans 7 with you and what this means. To the regenerate, you who have placed faith in Christ, who are trusting in Him and, re- and, and relying on His grace for salvation, this table is for you. You may or may not be a member of this church. That doesn't matter in terms of communion. If you are interested in finding out more of what being a membership looks like, I would love to have that conversation with you. But for now, this table is open to believers, to the regenerate, to those that have been made alive in Christ. Christian, this table reminds you more than anything else that nothing you do was ever sufficient to save you. Nothing. The only way for you to be saved was for the Son of God to die in your place. That's it. So as you come to the table, remember this. Remember what your sins cost. Remember your inability. Remember how little your works could accomplish. And remember how much His did. So we come to the table and we see first in the bread. The physical bodily death of Jesus. We cry out with Paul, who will save me from this body of death? One who embraced a body of death for you. The body of Christ broken for you. Christian, you have been justified by faith. That by placing faith in Christ, you have been declared righteous. Today, tomorrow, and forever. But until Christ returns and makes all things new, you will struggle daily with the battle of sin. This war will wage within your hearts. Some days it will win, and some days Jesus will win through you. Regardless, we look forward to the day when that battle will end. When Christ will accomplish the victory finally and forever. Until that day comes, we pray, come quickly, King Jesus, to the King. We have one final hymn to sing together before we leave. It is him 428, when peace like a river. Stand and sing.
As we end our service this morning, we end it the same way we do every week, by saying the Great Commission aloud together. Church, as you walk out those doors, you walk out with a task, with a mission, given to you by our King. And so I invite you to say it aloud with me as we conclude. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go in grace.